why don't we just take a second together and just, let's just pray. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, I pray today that you would uh, help us to hear from you. Lord, we think of our leaders. I think of President Biden. I pray for a special grace in his life. I pray that you give him wisdom. I pray that you'd protect him, protect his health, Lord. Lord, he needs you. I don't know that he realizes that, but he does. So please help him. And uh, Lord, please save him. For Vladimir Putin, I pray that you would confuse and frustrate his plans. I pray that you'd save him as well. I pray for the, the peace of Ukraine. I pray for the church, Lord. I pray for the church, Lord, there in Ukraine and in Russia, that it would be a shining city on a hill in the midst of so much tragedy. And, Lord, I also pray uh, for the peace of Israel and, Lord, that so many of those people um, biologically related to Abraham, but, Lord, spiritually lost. So many of those people, they don't know you and they need to be saved and they need to know you. We think of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, space force, those serving at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. We pray for their salvation. And we think of the persecuted church as we do every Sunday. Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria. Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran. Pastor Wang, Pastor John imprisoned in China. For the Christians, Lord, in North Korea and Afghanistan, and Eritrea, and Somalia, and the South Sudan. And in keeping with the author of Hebrews, Lord, right now, in obedience to you, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. And we pray that you would help them. We pray that you would strengthen their faith and encourage their hearts, Lord. And Lord, today I pray that we'd hear from you. I pray that you'd keep me from error. I pray that you'd help me to say only what you want me to say. If there's something you don't want me to say that I plan on saying, then don't, don't let me say it, Lord. If there's something I need to say that I, I have no intention or, or thought to say, then I pray that I would. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life. And I pray that we would just have the attention span this afternoon just, just to hear and to learn and to have our hearts encouraged I pray that you'd refresh us today, Lord, for those of us who just feel spiritually dry. We pray these things in your great name, amen and amen. Part 21, part 21. This is the 21st sermon that I will be preaching in John's gospel. If you're here for the very first time, you should know that we really like expository preaching. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book. Um, we do that for a couple of reasons. One, it helps to prevent taking verses out of context. Two, it helps to maintain the author's intended meaning. And so that's what we do. And so we've been going through John's gospel and uh, we made it through the first part of chapter seven last week and we're going to get through some more of chapter seven uh, this week. And, and I'll give you, if, if you weren't here last week, I'll, I'll give you uh, some background information and kind of connect the dots in a little bit when it's more appropriate. But I want to jump right into it. Chapter seven, part 21, starting in verse 25 of John's gospel. <coughs> it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, 
Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And, and here he is speaking openly, and, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? There's that Jesus guy again. He's talking, he's speaking openly, and the religious leaders aren't doing anything. I, why aren't they doing anything? Because we know they don't like him. We know they have it out for him. That this is, do they know something that we don't know? So they're having this kind of discussion, and the people's coming to this idea and this consensus that, well, the religious leaders don't like him, but they haven't actually done anything to stop him. They haven't taken any action to do anything about anything, and now he's just speaking so openly. So, so maybe they know something. Maybe they know something that we don't know. Maybe, whew, this is crazy, maybe they have some evidence that he actually is the Messiah. And at this point in the story, there seems to be this optimism. This optimistic feeling in the air in which maybe the people are finally starting to get it. Maybe they'll actually listen to Jesus. Maybe this is all going to work out. Maybe they can all get back together again. And then comes verse 27. It says, but, oh, that's right. We, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And, and what they are alert, uh, alluding to in verse 27 uh, seems to be linked with these folk traditions that show up in the second century during the time of the Christian apologist Justin Martyr. And, and there was in these traditions this understanding that when the Messiah would arrive, well, he would be unknown even to himself. And, and he would also have virtually no power until uh, Elijah would appear and anoint him. And so when you read John's gospel cover to cover, or you hear it preached in an expository method, you'll recall back in chapter 1, his origin story, where John deals with this issue, and John teaches us where he's come from, this guy Jesus. And now seeing it in the, the wider context of chapter 1, it's pretty clear, John the Evangelist is writing this with the intent to help the type of people like the ones we see here in verse 27. The, the type of person who's going to raise objections in regards to where Jesus came from in order to dismiss who he really is. And so, as quickly as the suggestion is made that perhaps Jesus is the Christ, it's immediately ruled out. It's just crossed off the board, it's dismissed, it's tossed aside like an old boyfriend. Or to quote the great philosopher Taylor Swift, like, we're never ever getting back again together, right? Like, we thought maybe, maybe there's a chance, maybe the people would come and reunite with Jesus. Remember, in, in, at the feeding of the 5,000, he's got like 5,000, by the end of the chapter, there's like 11 people, but yeah, they're, they're not getting back together, like, What's happening is what happens oftentimes here. They, they talk themselves out of believing. They convince themselves it's just a coincidence. They convince themselves there's some rational explanation like, oh, that's right, we know where he's from. Yeah, yeah, it can't be the Messiah. Despite the evidence, they reason together that, no, no, he can't be the Christ. It's just not possible. And so verse 28 and 29, it says, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. 
He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus says, you guys, like, you should know. You're, you're the most religious, most privileged, most well-taught people in the world. I mean, you've got the actual scriptures of God, yet you don't, you don't know God. That's why you want to kill me. I know God. I'm from God. But since you don't know him, you can't recognize him. You see, when it comes to people today, many, many of them are just as confused. Even though they seemingly know what the Bible says, they just convince themselves and, and come to the wrong conclusion. Like I was listening to uh, Wretched Radio this week. Uh, if you've never heard Wretched Radio, it's a great Christian podcast. Um, you should subscribe to it. I don't get anything from saying this, but on Wednesdays, they do a special episode called Witness Wednesdays, and I love it. Um, they just go out usually on the campus of Georgia Tech or, or at Athens there at Georgia, um, and they just witness to people. And so it is very encouraging, very edifying. There's been many times where I'm just running on my treadmill on Wednesdays, and I'm just like, Jesus, please save that guy, Jimmy. Please save him. And it's just, I love it. I, I encourage you to listen to it. But as I was listening to this episode, he's having this conversation with this young man, and Todd asked him a, a couple questions, and he gave what seemed like theologically correct answers. The kid was like, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God's son. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I, I believe that he's the only way um, and that those who believe in him, they won't perish. They'll have everlasting life. Um, and he even, once again, he, he was very clear. He's like, so just to clarify, you, you think he's the only way? Like John 14, 6, oh yeah, he's the only way. And he said, okay, Jimmy, so um, let's just say I'm a Buddhist and if I don't believe in Jesus, will I go to hell? And the kid was like, oh no, 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 you won't go to hell as long as you're a good person. I was like, well, hold on, wait, what just happened? You, you just came out, you, like, you had all the right answers, and then you came to the wrong conclusion. This, this is what Jesus is getting here. This is what he's getting at here. He's saying, you guys should know the answers. You, you have God's words. You know what God's words say, but the problem is you don't really know God. And I think that's a very... Solemn reminder that you can know what the Bible says and still not really know who God is. So they were seeking to arrest him. Verse 30. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I've said this several times in John's Gospel when there is this reference to his hour coming. It is almost always in reference to his crucifixion, to, to his time on the cross. And so they want to arrest him because they don't like what he just said in verse 28 and 29. Right? God sent me. You don't know God. I know God. You don't really know him. You think you do. Not really. Uh, they don't like that. In a similar fashion today, when non-Christians are confronted with truth, biblical truth, uh, they don't like that either. Or non-Christians who think they're Christians, they really don't like that. And more often than not, instead of repenting, instead of just acknowledging their sin and seeking forgiveness, they prefer to just get angry, get upset, lash out like the people here who are attempting to arrest him and just shut him down. And it says in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Will he? 
Will he do more signs? So they come, there's a part of these people there, they believe, but it's interesting for the explanation they give right after John says they believed. They're like, will he do any more? Right? Process of elimination. It's got to be this guy. No one's come and done more stuff. Besides, he's kind of awesome. Think about all the cool stuff he's done. We got free alcohol at Cana. We got free healing. We got free food. And if we play our cards right, we might get free college or free health care. Maybe we even get our student loans paid off. Man, I'm all for this guy, Jesus. And maybe I'm too much of a cynic when it comes to verse 31. But I do think it's worth noting, as D.A. Carson points out in his commentary uh, to this point, and I quote, There is no hint, however, that these people developed any deep understanding of the significance of the signs, thereby grasping who Jesus really was, end quote. Like, maybe some of them truly knew Jesus in a saving way. I hope they did. But I can't help but have my doubts given the context. And so the Pharisees, they heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they sent officers to arrest him. And if you remember back to last week's sermon, when we were going through the start of chapter 7, the authorities... The religious leaders, they made it pretty clear they don't want people talking about Jesus. And it was for fear of those same leaders which caused a lot of people to be too scared to talk about him. But, but now people are talking. The, the word here in English is, is muttering. In the original Greek, it can mean at times whispering or speaking secretly. And as a result, you might say, well, they violated the terms of agreement with the religious leaders at least. Kind of like today. Like if, you, if you're a Christian and you're going to talk about Jesus, you might surprisingly find your social media account suspended because let's just get real guys everyone knows that conservative christians are really just domestic terrorists right they're they're secret nazi groups they're racist bigots they are the greatest threat to democracy to quote people who don't deserve to have their names even mentioned in a sermon and what i think is especially interesting here is the reference to both the chief priest who almost always were sadducees and the pharisees the Sadducees, they came from the aristocracy. Uh, these guys were the theological liberals, if they really held to any theology at all. They were basically like just there running the, the political side of things. The Pharisees, they were the men of the people. They were theologically conservative, which is ironic that I say that they're the men of the people um, because they look their nose down on the people all the time. But regardless, uh, the reason I think this is super interesting is because neither one of these groups get along very well at all, right? This is Democrats, this is Republicans, if that helps to bridge the contextual gap. But when it comes to Jesus, man, they don't like him. Because as we saw at last week, he steps on their toes. He says, you guys only care about yourselves. You guys only care about uh, your own selfish desires. You guys only care about your own glory. You guys only care about what people think about you. So they don't like him. They don't, they don't like him. And when they get together, they send officers to arrest him. And these officers are oftentimes referred to as what's known as the, the temple guards. And, and they were kind of a, a temple police force drawn from the Levites with the primary responsibility of maintaining order in the temple area. And, and that would fall under the command, the temple police force, of what's known as the, the captain of the guard, the captain of the temple guard, 
who was also drawn from one of the priestly families and whose authority was second to that of only the high priest himself. And so from the Romans' point of view, as long as it wasn't an issue that they really cared about, the temple police force could be used in whatever way they were directed. And right now they're being directed to go arrest Jesus. 33 and 34. This is going to get really good right now. Jesus then said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. I love this. Like, don't, don't miss this. Like, this is such a cool scene when you think about it. it, it I can see it playing out like in a movie. Here come these bad guys, right? They show up, knocking on his door to arrest him. Right? This is the SS, this is the Gestapo, this is the KJB. For our American audience, this would be the DOJ or the feds rolling up in their uh, suburbans. They're coming to take you out. And they've got no idea who they're dealing with right now. <laughs> they come to arrest him, and he's like, let me tell you how this is going to play out right now. I'm going to choose where I go, when I go, and who's going to follow me. You're not going to detain me. You're not going to search me. You're not going to arrest me. Your men aren't tough enough to take me, and your prisons aren't strong enough to hold me, and none of your efforts are going to succeed. There will be no delays in my departure. It will be on time. It will be on schedule, because I'm going to be arriving at my destination as planned to be with my father. <laughs> like, who talks like this, right? The Son of God does. That's who. That's who. And so it says in verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And, and the reference here to the dispersion from the Greek word diaspora, that's a, that's a pretty common way to, uh, that people would use and describe Jews that lived throughout the Roman Empire, but that lived outside the geographical footprint of Palestine or Israel proper. And within verse 35, there's a little bit of self-contained irony, because like, well, I don't understand where he's going. This doesn't make sense. He's going to go to the Greeks? I don't know. Do you know? I don't understand this. And if you remember back to the introductory comments of John's gospel, and here's where the irony comes. John's primarily writing to what audience? Yes, yeah, see, there it comes full circle. He's primarily writing to the Greeks, and, and they're speaking almost better than they even know right here. And then it says in verse 36, well, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. I don't understand that. And the very, the very question they ask is self-incriminating because it only serves to reveal what Jesus has just stated, that they do not really know anything of spiritual significance. They don't really know God. That's why they don't understand what he's talking about because if they did know God, they wouldn't be asking this question in the first place. The question reveals their spiritual deficiency and the scary thing is they think they know God. Much like many religious people today who think they know God because they grew up in church, or they got baptized, or they went to a Wanners or Vacation Bible School, but they don't really know him at all. They don't know him in a real way. They don't know him in a saving way. And so, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. More on both those verses in just a second. Verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given. That's strange. Just want to make sure that said what my Bible said it did. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, When we read verse 39, it it seems there's this clear anticipation of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 44.3. He said, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. But verse 39 said, For as yet the spirit had not yet been given. So, I'm reading, I'm like, what does that mean? What's, what's that like? Because I don't think any of us, 2023, yeah, none of us are old enough to remember a time in which the Holy Spirit hadn't been given. And so oftentimes I find, especially within Christians today, there sometimes can be this gap in, in the linkage between the, the old and the new. And we're like, how does that fit together? How are we to, to make sense of, of that? Because that's a little confusing. And I've got no like, frame of reference for that. And so to flush this out, I just want to read a quote from D.A. Carson. Here's what he says, and then I'll talk about it and break it down even more. Of course, John cannot possibly mean the Spirit was not yet in existence. He doesn't mean that, right? Or operative in the prophets. John himself has already spoken of the Spirit's operation upon and in Jesus himself. He did that back in 132 and 334. What the evangelist means is that the spirit of the dawning kingdom comes as the result, indeed, the entailment of the Son's completed work. And up to that point, the Holy Spirit was not given in the full Christian sense of the term. End quote. And I think the key phrase, if you got lost right there, from what Carson says is the Holy Spirit hasn't come in the full Christian sense of the term. And not coming in the full Christian sense of the term doesn't mean that he hasn't come at all. And uh, by way of illustration, I I heard Piper say something along the lines of this, uh, which might, I think, help bridge this gap for us. Uh, In this country, we have presidential elections every four years. And in a situation in which Uh, the incumbent president can't run because he's been termed out, or in the situation where the incumbent is beaten, you'll have a new president who is elected. He's the president-elect. That's the the, the name that we give that, right? And and already, upon the election of of the president-elect, he starts beginning taking on certain responsibilities. They start lining up security details from the Secret Service, but his inauguration isn't until the third week of January. And... In the same sense, the Holy Spirit has always existed, has always operated, yet in that same way where the president, he was elected president, but he's not inaugurated until the third week in January, in that fullest sense of his role, that I think is probably the the best way to go about when we understand or try to think the difference between how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament and the, the nuance of what John's saying here. The inauguration, the Spirit coming in its fullest sense, will come at Pentecost. And so, this is something the people have been 
looking forward to, like I said, as Isaiah 44.3 had mentioned, this promise, this future hope that they have, that God would pour water on a, on a thirsty land and streams on a dry ground, and he'd pour his spirit upon your kids and your kids, and there'd be blessings for descendants and descendants. Oh, that's coming. That's coming, for sure. But then we go back to verse 37. It says, In the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, if you remember back to the context of chapter 7, this all occurs during the Feast of Booths. Uh, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. I called it Booths because it was to commemorate when their ancestors were in the wilderness and they just had temporary housing. So they lived in little tents and, and booths. So this is, this is like the state fair there, okay? It is, it is popping. People are showing up to the festival. It's one, one of the three biggest festivals they would have. They're showing up. Um, tons of people are there. The population of Jerusalem uh, balloons and one of the most memorable parts of this festival, which I think Katie Swafford mentioned on Tuesday, a small group, is actually going on right now, or it was going on last week, which is kind of cool because we're in the same kind of time frame. The most memorable part would be this seven-day water ceremony that took place. This is all really important information, so just bear with me. They had this seven-day water ceremony, and on each of the seven days prior to the final day, what would happen is the priest would go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would have this golden water pitcher, and they'd have it, and they'd fill it up, and they'd take it to the temple, and then they'd walk around the altar with the high priest leading the way, and as the priest neared the water gate, the ram's horn, the shofar was blown, blown and, and psalms of praise and thanksgiving were sung to God for the harvest, and then there would be this petition for rain, because this time of the year, in the fall, where the, the, their cisterns, their wells, well, they'd be nearly empty because of all the, the hot summer dry heat. And so for six days, this parade took place once each morning. And on the seventh day, it was repeated seven times, including on the eighth day, which would be a time of reflection and prayer. That's the backdrop when verse 37 shows up. And so Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and he offers the people water, living water. And the amazing thing about all of this is that the offer is open-ended. The invitation is given to everyone. If you're thirsty, go to Jesus. And the only qualification he mentions is thirst. The only qualification is having a desire to drink from Jesus. Like, like no one's charging for this drink. You don't have to wait in line to get the drink. Open invite. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus. Go to Jesus if you're thirsty. Every single person gets this invitation even his enemies who want him dead, who are trying to arrest him. Think about that for a second, right? Imagine you're in Afghanistan slinging some lead with some gunslingers, and you're in the middle of this firefight, and then all of a sudden you say, hold on one second, can I get you guys some water? They were just trying to kill you. What do you mean get them some water, right? If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Any Pharisee, any chief priest, any officer trying to arrest me, any offended person, any member of the LGBTQI community, any Taliban fighter, any Al-Qaeda terrorist, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, he says. 
So this is why the gospel is so spectacular. This is why the love of Christ is so amazing because the offer is for anyone who has a thirst and he is saying this to his enemies. He is saying this to rebels and hostiles and he is saying this to you and he's saying it to me. And we know he's not talking about literal water. But he's speaking in a way that captures the feeling. He's speaking in a way that every living person understands and feels. Like every living person understands our, our critical survival need for water. It's, it's basic science. Like Dr. Fauci certified basic science. <laughs> You've got to have water to live. Like everyone agrees with that. In the same way, every single one of us needs God to live. Every single living person has a need to be saved from God, by God, and for God. All people have a spiritual thirst. Every person in the history of civilization. But the problem is, many, if not most people on the planet, they look for something other than God to quench that thirst. I think Jeremiah 2.13 captures it so clearly. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, as if that wasn't bad enough, right? The fountain of living waters. And then on top of that, they hewed out cisterns, wells for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that is the problem of the world. Jeremiah says they have this spiritual thirst, but instead of going to God... They try to fill it by everything other than God. And he likens it to building the wells that have cracks in them and they can't hold any water. They can't provide life, let alone sustain it. And Jesus, he's offering this water. And for some of us in here, you've never quenched the spiritual thirst that you have. You've never really come to Jesus in this sort of way, in a saving way. And for others, you're kind of like the people that Jeremiah chews out in chapter 2, verse 13. You've forsaken God. You've ignored God. You've tried to quench your thirst for God by a relationship, by a job, by a career, a toy, a hobby. You've looked to those things to meet a need that only God can meet. And in the end, you're still thirsty in the end you're still empty in the end you're actually worse off than you were before like some of you it's been so long since you've even been to a church gathering like the one we're in right now like some of you it's been forever since you prayed or even oh, you opened your bible and you can feel it you feel so dry you're just like spiritually dehydrated and you have no one to blame but yourself because you've neglected god and pretended as if you didn't need him, despite the truth that, yes, you will die without him. So when Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast to offer the people the very thing they've been praying for, and yet so much more than that, the question becomes this. How will you quench your thirst? Will you go to Jesus? Or will you continue to forsake and ignore God in favor of cheap, man-made substitutes like the foolish people who prefer water bottles riddled with holes? Jesus says, come to me. You're thirsty? Come and drink. That's the offer. 
I can imagine in a room this size today, how many of you just might be spiritually not where you know you should be, spiritually where, man, you can't even place yourself on the scale. You say, can you, can you help me, Pastor Joe? Yeah, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He's offering this drink at a time when all the people are praying that God would send water. He says, I got something better for you. I've got living water that you really desperately need. So come to me and drink. Yet the sad reality is most people say, no thanks, God. They say, forget you, God. I'll go to meet this need some other way. And Jeremiah says, it's as if they are so foolish in committing these two great evils because they've made these broken water containers their thing. And they don't do anything because they can't hold water. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your son. I thank you for the offer of living water to quench our thirst. For those of us in here today who just spiritually, we just feel so dry. We, see, we, feel, like, we feel like we're a thousand miles away from you right now. We don't feel close to you at all. We don't feel near you at all. I, I pray, Lord, for refreshment for those people. I pray that they would run to you, Jesus. Lord, and for the rest of us, God, I pray and ask just corporately for forgiveness because for some of us, we've got no one to blame but ourselves. We've got no one to blame but ourselves, as Jeremiah 2.13 reminds us. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us and I pray that you would give us a heart and a desire to thirst and go right to you, the source, and not look for other things to kind of meet those needs in our lives. We love you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. You are so good, so great, so kind, so wonderful, so amazing. Especially when I consider that this offer is to everybody, including the people trying to arrest you right now in this moment. We pray these things in your great name, amen.